Cool Pendium Spotlight. Hi, I'm RAP listeners. It's Jesse Warner. Today we're talking to Dr. Beatrix Bonzal, who is Assistant Professor of Pediatric Emergency Medicine at UT Southwestern. And she's also our author on pediatric pericarditis, a new chapter in Corpendium. Thanks for being here, Beatrix. Absolutely. Glad to be here. So was there a case in particular that prompted this chapter? It seems like pediatric pericarditis is not particularly common. In fact, in your chapter, you highlight that less than 0.2% of kids actually get this. Yeah, sure. So there was a particular case that prompted my interest. The answer is also, though, that it was an undramatic case. Undramatic because the patient wasn't particularly sick, but it is unusual for us to see this in the pediatric emergency department. So it became this sort of it's an important thing and it can be a life-threatening issue. And he wasn't that sick. So what do you do with these kids? Absolutely. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that case? It was a teenage male, came in just with reproducible chest pain. We usually get an EKG on most of the kids with chest pain, particular in that age group. And he had widespread concave ST segment elevation and PR depression. He was a little bit uncomfortable, but not impressively so. Cardiology was consulted, and the conversation was admit or not admit and do a further workup inpatient. Since this is so uncommon in pediatrics, at least that we catch, he was admitted for a more detailed workup. And by discharge, he was suspected of having a rheumatological etiology for his pericarditis. And I have to say, I have not seen pediatric pericarditis. Now, I say that with the caveat of maybe I've seen it and I didn't know it, but I haven't made the diagnosis myself. So when should we suspect it? What were some tip-offs or key findings that made you think about this diagnosis? You know, in theory, it should be a patient with chest pain, radiates to the left shoulder. They maybe have a friction rub if they have an effusion. I think one of the key things that if there's even a little bit of an effusion, they will have discomfort while laying down. Having said that, a lot of these kids are in rooms that are just chairs, so we don't have them laying down. So at the end of the day, it's just basically getting the EKG on these kids that show up with symptoms and being fortunate enough to see the typical findings. Chest x-ray won't be useful. It's really just the EKG. And then hopefully I'm having some other findings to go with that. And are there other things that point to a diagnosis of pericarditis or other things that made you think about it? You said the patient came in with reproducible chest pain. That's not anything we can hang our hat on. What else would make us think about pericarditis or put it higher on our differential? Well, actually, in his case, he really just had reproducible chest wall pain, which is very problematic for us because we just always associate that with costochondritis. Totally. Are you saying that his presentation did not follow the textbook? I can't believe it. Amazing, right? That's why the EKG, in, especially in this teenage population where teenage males are actually the most likely to have it, EKG is very valuable in these scenarios. Now, let me ask you this, because... I did actually read your chapter on pediatric pericarditis, so I have a little information. But did this patient present with any viral history? He did not. So that's another thing that made it hard, but that's why at the end that it ended up being a rheumatological condition, which is on the list of things that can cause pericarditis. 
So just a reminder for our listeners that a lot of patients who have pericarditis will have some viral syndrome before they have this presentation. And as you mentioned, they may have a rheumatologic disorder. Are there other things that can cause pericarditis that we should have on our mind? Certainly. So hematological disorders, infectious disorders, and worldwide TB is the most common cause of pericarditis. But within our population in the United States, probably about 85% of cases are viral in etiology, a little more than that, actually. And you mentioned that, of course, costochondritis is a diagnosis that I feel like we kind of turn to a lot when we're not totally sure what's causing the chest pain. And something that we feel is possible in an otherwise healthy young person. So to make the leap between costochondritis to pericarditis, was it really the EKG that led everyone down that path? Yes. And basically that and conversation with cardiology, who are the experts at the EKGs, and then the decision was made. He warranted a more detailed evaluation, including uh, ultrasound, echocardiogram, more lab work, etc., Let's review the management and the admission criteria. So interestingly enough, in pediatrics, there is no set of clear admission criteria. It's fairly uncommon in kids. There isn't enough data to say one way or the other. Generally, patients with larger effusions, pain that is concerning or malignancy concerns, autoimmune process or infection, for example, high fever, should be admitted. That's a good point. So when they come in, if they are admitted, then they would undergo an echocardiogram and close monitoring. Is there anything else that happens during that admission? Typically, in that situation, you'd end up getting inflammatory markers such as a CRP, obviously the CBC, a blood culture, and x-ray, yes, but it will be fairly nonspecific in pediatrics unless they have a large effusion. And even those markers such as ESR and CRP may not be particularly elevated unless you're dealing with an infectious etiology. And then how do we manage this? So what do we do for these patients once we've decided that it's likely pericarditis? So the first line of treatment, and it has been for a long time, are NSAIDs, starting with ibuprofen. In older children, naproxen is an option as well. Corticosteroids, though everybody likes to go to it for every possible inflammatory condition, should be avoided since there is a higher risk of reoccurrence when used. Other treatment modalities include colchicine for recurrent cases and those who do not tolerate NSAIDs. Yes, such a good point about steroids. So it's my understanding that steroids might hasten the resolution of their symptoms, but like you said, has an association with recurrence, and so we should avoid it. Exactly, yes. And another modality that's being used or has been used, and we're hearing more about it due to COVID, is Anacure. It's an anti-IL-2 therapy. It's one to two milligrams per kilogram daily sub-Q. And it is the most recent advance in the treatment of pericarditis. It's a second-line agent with recurrent pericarditis and those with raised acute phase reactants and also refractory to NSAIDs and colchicine. How long should patients expect until they have resolution of symptoms, approximately? Usually it's about four to six weeks. It can take quite a bit of time for truly resolution. And most of these kids, if we send them home, give them ibuprofen or naproxen, as long as they're following up with their pediatrician that week, 
Is that pretty good follow-up or is there something else that we should be arranging for these kids? So since this is a fairly uncommon diagnosis in the pediatric population, from an ER perspective, I would say that the patient should have cardiology follow-up within a week or so. If it were typical, as in the adult population, definitely follow up with your PCP and carry on. But this is fairly unusual. So I think it's worth having cardiology follow-up. Summary. I'd like to hear from you as the author of this chapter. What do you think is maybe the most important information that we should take away from this section? If we remember nothing else, what should we take away? I guess the summary of it is that pericarditis is unusual in kids. And as such, when you get a patient with chest pain, particularly in the teenage population, please get an EKG on these patients. It's important because you will have the findings that are typical and make sure that you have follow-up for them because there's certainly a risk for some other underlying etiology that's very important to get a jump on. Having said that, most of these patients with pericarditis in the pediatric population will self-resolve even with the ibuprofen that you would have given for costochondritis. But being aware that there are other reasons that can certainly be life-threatening, and it's easy to miss, particularly during this time when everybody's coming in with a fever, if they're coming in with some chest pain, just order the EKG so you're not missing this. I'm Jesse Warner. That was Dr. Beatrix Bunzal. Thank you so much for being here to talk to us today about your Corpendium chapter on pediatric pericarditis. Thanks. I just want to add in a little mention about COVID-19 and pericarditis. We do have a Corpendium chapter on this. It's in the COVID chapter, and it's called Myocarditis and Pericarditis. And let me just quickly summarize. So there have been reports of myocarditis and pericarditis in patients who have received one of the mRNA vaccinations, and that's Pfizer or Moderna. The few cases of myocarditis that have been reported seem to have occurred predominantly in young males, ages 12 to 29 years old. It's usually after the second dose and within seven days after receiving the vaccine. And most patients had mild symptoms. They may have had chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations, but quickly improved with rest and NSAIDs. As of June 11th, 2021, 52 million people ages 12 to 29 have been vaccinated. And based on the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, the rate of myocarditis was 40.6 cases per million in males ages 12 to 29 after receiving the second mRNA dose. So the American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC continue to recommend vaccination, and now the Pfizer vaccine is available for children ages 5 and up. Potential vaccine-associated adverse events should be reported to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. V-A-E-R-S.